listening to the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, a New Zealander living her best life in Fukushima, Japan. I'm a podcast consultant and the creator of Pod Launch with Jane, a system that helps you create your dream podcast without all the drama and hassle, leaving you more free time to do the things you love to do. This show is for people who want to hear stories of women who are doing amazing things here in Japan and across the world. You'll find loads of inspiration for how you can live your best life wherever you are. I'm glad you're here. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, coming to you from Iwaki City, Fukushima. I hope you are all enjoying having children mostly back at school, if that's what's happening in your world, and that you're enjoying the cooler weather here in Japan. It has been quite nice, actually, especially here in Iwaki City. It's been quite beautiful weather and I have been wearing my jeans again for two days now and I'm so happy <laughs> because it means it's cool enough for me to wear jeans again where it has not been cool enough for that for weeks and weeks and weeks and I think the heat was definitely affecting me in that sort of in that way of you know just feeling a little bit stressed out by just how hot it was all the time and now that it's a sort of more comfortable 22 23 degrees I just feel a lot more normal yes so today on the podcast I have a wonderful guest for you her name is Karen Hill Anton she is the author of the memoir The View from Breast Pocket Mountain which came out recently or I want to say recently not that long ago and I actually was given a copy of this book by the very wonderful Sarah Furuya. I won a copy. I thought I'm going to win that book and I won it. I love I love it when that happens. <laughs> and I've so enjoyed reading it. And Karen came to Japan a lot longer before many of the people probably listening to this podcast did if you're in Japan. And her description of what it was like and the things that she did and just even the way she got to Japan is amazing. So I really hope you will pick up this book yourself and please enjoy this episode and listen to what Karen has to say about uh, her life and how she became a writer in Japan. Also, yeah, how she decided to live her life in Japan and chose to just get on with life here and make it the best that she possibly could. So yes, without further ado, here is Karen. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. It's great to have you on the show today. Good afternoon, Jane. It's my pleasure to be here talking with you. So Karen, please introduce yourself for the listeners who don't know who Karen Hill Anton is. My name is Karen Hill Anton. I'm American. I have been living in Japan for the past 46 years. I arrived in Japan on June 1st, 1975 with my husband, who is also an, an American and from New York City. We're both born and grew up in New York City. And well, readers of my memoir will, will find out my, my husband and I have been friends since we were 16 years old. <laughs> so that's a very long time ago. <laughs> that would, 
And yes, at, at one point, I guess it was in 1973, he was in, invited to study in Japan and asked if, if I would go with him. And, and I said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> was pretty much you do? A <laughs> uh, simple answer. If, if he were to ask me now, I would probably say, oh, what about our children's education? What about uh, health care and retirement? Those are, you know, become more things of concern. In any case, and, and we came to Japan literally driving here since we covered a lot of the trip overland. We first went, we flew from New York to Belgium and toured most of Western Europe and then leaving, let's say, from Northern Italy, we drove across the former Yugoslavia, since that country no longer exists, then into Bulgaria, Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan. And later we took public transportation through Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Thailand. And I, I should mention that we had our five-year-old daughter with us at, at the time and that we were driving uh, in a Volkswagen Bug, a Beetle. It's an amazing story. It just gets more amazing than that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I covered the trip uh, in some detail in the memoir. I, I should say, too, you know, um, I had beta re readers of the book before it was published, and asking them, you know, things like, you know, what did they think worked or didn't work or, you know, what parts you know might have been boring, and I I thought about taking out the whole part about the trip across the Near East and and coming to Japan, because well you know I'd done it and I'd written about it, and so and once you've done that, you think well who's interested in that you know, and they answered that oh, it was absolutely fascinating you know uh, they felt they were traveling with me and and you know they really liked all of the details. Yes, definitely. That was one of my favorite parts too. I have read the book as well. I won't give away all the plots and all the all the good stuff that's in there, but yes, amazing journey. And it was all done with maps, obviously, not with a GPS or anything fandangled like that. Not even a telephone. <laughs> no telephones. No, like uh, Google, yeah, Google anything. You can't sort of Google, where can I get food near here? Or is there a gasoline stand in the next 100 kilometers? It was just all flying by your seat of your pants, basically. Absolutely true. With some map, paper maps. <laughs> amazing, amazing, yes. Yes, so you have perhaps one of the most unique coming to Japan stories I've heard yet on the podcast. We've, we have a lot of, you know, how did you get to Japan? But overland, how many thousand kilometers would that have been that you drove? I think in kilometers. Actually, I, I don't think we ever calculated the number of kilometers but i can say i mean we were on the road for one year okay it took you a year literally uh, traveling for mm. one year so oh my gosh yeah, yeah i could go back to and you know to new york and say you know how many kilometers is it across the atlantic ocean to europe and you know just add it all up but um, we, we covered a lot of a lot of kilometers yeah yeah Wow. So yeah, you spent a year getting to Japan. I've never heard that one before either. That's amazing. And once you arrived here, then you started what would become your life for the next 46 years here in Japan. But this was in, you said, was it 1970? 1975. When we Five, right. Yeah. So even me arriving in 2002, we did have some 
things you know we could call home once a month the email was a thing we could find a computer to do email onto email family and things back home when I arrived and I thought it was rough but in 1975 it must have been letters letters and a, a phone call once a year or something yeah telephone calls very different so world then you, you didn't think about I mean you'd think twice before you made a call if not three times and you had to know whether or not you could afford you know to, to call or you know family members calling right. you what yeah. you know at what expense were they doing it it was a different world so how did you deal with that sort of being away from your family considering how connected we are today and how connected you are i mean you have your own family now you must be very connected with them absolutely the difference like, yeah <laughs> whatsapp and email whatever yeah right yeah, <laughs> no, it's completely different just i think that i mean you're living in the time you're, you're you're living so you i'd say adjust to whatever the circumstances are and that's what it was i mean we knew we would not be calling home I mean, my own parents had died but my husband, you know, would be in touch with his mother and father from, from time to time, but, but not often. And I remember there were, you know, quite a few letters back and forth. For, for example, when we were expecting a, our first daughter who was born here, I wrote a letter telling my mother-in-law that, you know, we were expecting a baby in February. And if I, you know, wrote her in I don't know, in, in June or something, I probably got an answer in July. <laughs> you know, it's a, <laughs> yeah. It, it was, um, yeah, much more, well, things were slower and there was, there was more space be, between things. You know, you didn't send an email and you got a, a response, you know, within minutes or uh, a WhatsApp and within seconds. Yeah. And just, yeah. Yeah. Then, you know, then that's the way life was. So, you know, I, Waited to be congratulated or acknowledged or recognized or whatever it was, you know, there, there was mm. more waiting, I would say. Yeah. So your life up till the point where you got to Japan, you were all over the place. You went to many places. It wasn't your first rodeo with living overseas and all that. And I really hope that the listeners of this podcast will definitely read this book and just see that some of the things you got up to was just amazing. And I really liked the part where you went to live in, was it, it was Denmark, wasn't it, that you were in? Yeah. And having lived in Sweden for a year, I was like, oh, she was in Denmark. And it sounded very similar, the kind of things that, that happened and the, and the local the government telling you what you'd have to do and all of these things as well. That was really nice. And some meeting some famous people in your travels and all these kinds of things that happened. It's definitely been an amazing life you've led thus far. And it was all serendipitous, you know, that Yes, and, you know, right. yeah. I didn't plot, you know, or lay in wait to meet, you know, some of these people quite famous. You know, I didn't waylay them or anything like that. <laughs> what is, yeah, just things that have happened in, in my life. And and that was a serendipity. And I think the word implies that it's something nice or something, you know, the pleasant that, that happened. So. Yeah, yeah, I was happy to you know, be able to write about that in, in the book and re record that. But And again, without making it a thing, just, just like this was part of my life in, it, uh, in the same way that some other experiences that weren't so happy were, were part of my life. But And I think this is what why some readers um, have remarked that it shows a full life, mm, you know, mm. not just the happy parts and certainly and not just, you know, the 
the sad or really challenging or problematic parts, but a full life that, you know, is recorded and acknowledged and, you know, there are ups and downs and goods and bads and happy times and sad times. And that's what a life is, you know, and luck will put you in some places that sometimes that are that are really good and and that same you know kind of luck you could end up in situations that that are not yeah yeah especially i think for you know people living in 2021 and having gone through 2020 which was all the things that this is one of those times yeah and there will be good times again and there will be more bad times again but there will be good times again so yeah, this, we have. You really have to regularly remind yourself, and and I make a point of telling that to my children because, well, and I think it's just so hard for everyone, you know, what we've been going through with the pandemic, and and it's not just about I think uh, losing hope or, yeah, I mean everyone's just so tired of it, you know, and well, what I tell my children is that this is uh, calls for patience and fortitude. I don't I don't know what what else can you do. You have no control over it. You have, literally have no control. I mean, we can in, in terms of doing the best we can to protect our health and the health of our you know, community and you know, friends, et cetera. But we can't make this virus disappear. It really, it's not within our uh, ability to do that. So got to get through it. Patience and fortitude. You heard it here. <laughs> but yeah, very wise words. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, this this just the ongoingness. When is this going to finish? Nobody knows. This the uncertainty is 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 great. We thought now it would be over. Oh, definitely, <laughs> yes, exactly. Definitely. I was playing instead of talking to you right now. I was, you know, mm. in Spain and Portugal. We're going to be taking this time, you know, in twenty twenty one. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable, isn't it? So yeah, this book that you have written that we've been discussing is called The View from Breast Pocket Mountain. I'm curious, please tell us the name of Breast Pocket Mountain in Japanese. Tokoroyama. Tokoroyama. Right, that's the name. Okay. Tokoro, when you wear kimono, this is the the tokoro. And, and, and where women would have, it's like, you know, a small well a type of pocket handkerchief you know they, they might put it right here but the, the tucked away yeah. place in a way and yeah it, it could be um yeah i i would say even officially translated as uh, breast pocket mountain but it, you know I, I took some literary i license with with it and if you actually saw well, and you can see it on the, the back of the book. That's the place for Tokoroyama. It is really like that. Well, and it's still there. <laughs> I, I live yeah. Probably half an hour from, from there right now. But it's at the very top of a mountain. And there were only, I think we had four neighbors. And in that place, you really felt like, yeah, this is the breast pocket. You know, the place that close to you even though we had an expansive view really I mean could just really you, you felt like you could see forever the place where the houses actually were these farmhouses was really like a breast pocket I guess if you were living there today that tv show Potsun to Ikenya 
might come and visit you. Do you know that TV show? No, I don't. It's, it's a TV show where they like look up for, they look on Google Maps for like really isolated little farmhouses and then they go and visit and see who lives there. <laughs> oh, I don't even know this. Uh, about you this. might like it if you if you see it. I think it's called, it's called Potsen Top Iken. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, something, yeah, something like that. And that's essentially they would visit houses like yours in the middle of nowhere and just to see what you're doing and why do you live here and what do you get up to up here in this mountain? Yeah, I, if they showed up at our house, I'm sure they'd be surprised. <laughs> I would were there. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, they even made a TV show about this in Japan. Of course they have. Yeah, they've found a way to make it into a TV show. So what was it like arriving in a place like that in 1970? Was it after 75, wasn't it? It would be 76 ish. What was that? Um, to the, the uh, well, to Tokoroyama, to Breast Pocket Mountain. That, by then it was 1976. Was, you know, we had spent our first year here living in a martial arts and yoga dojo, a training center. And uh, of course, I write about that in. in Quite some detail in the book. I, I think it takes up more chapters in the other thing, um, the other part. And it was a, I guess, a formative experience in a way of introducing us to at least one type of possibility of, of living in, in Japan, and that was living almost under the heel of a tyrannical sensei. Of, mm. and again, I mean, we were never in any danger. You know, we, we could have you know walked out of the door at, at any time, but you know. The program my, my husband was in was for one year, and, and you know, we stuck it out. But we went straight from there to the, this farmhouse. And um, what can I say? I guess maybe at the time we had some romantic notion about Japan, and we really felt and said when we first got to the farmhouse, this is it. You know, this is the Japan we've been, been looking for. And it was one where, you know, you know, people live close to the earth and in, in nature and, you know, followed a lot of the old traditions. And I also mentioned in the book that, you know, our house, our farmhouse didn't have even one convenience, including no hot water, <laughs> no flushing toilet. Uh, we had electricity and you could, the wires of which you could see everywhere. And, but, you know, we were young and it wasn't so much I, idealistic, but... You can accept, you know, certain things. I, I think when you're younger and you don't think, oh, this is tough or this is such a drag or I don't want to do this, <laughs> you know. And just, yeah, it's new. It, it's interesting. Uh, and we were living close enough to neighbors, you know, to be learning some things from them. So the time we were doing it, it wasn't so much enjoying it as this was our life and, and we were living in it and we were per perfectly satisfied with it. Things change, and when I was expecting our fourth child, mm -hmm. I said, "This is it. I've had enough. This isn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. We have to leave and, and leave the town." And now, of course, we well, we live in a custom-built house, and I don't build a fire to make a bath. I push a button. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, the, your description of it was very similar to listening to my husband talking about his childhood oh. in rural Totori. So he grew up in rural Totori where they didn't get a flushing toilet until I think after he went to university. So 
That's a price that he in the late 80s, right? And I'm just like, what? You know, this is <laughs> unbelievable to me. Right. Um, coming from New Zealand, where you know, I've always well, some yeah, a flushing toilet is you should expect right, a flushing right. toilet unless you're on top of a mountain or something. But yeah. It's interesting though that your experience in that dojo, I think must have given you a lot of the cultural knowledge or something that made you successful in that rural area with to be able to go from the dojo to that amazingly traditional Japanese cultural area of living in, in a rural place and stay there and become part of the right. community. I don't know if it was the experience in the dojo so much because that was all so removed from reality in, in a way. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think more the, 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 the senpai kohai oh, things and all it, that, that sort way. of thing. But of course, you know, going to live mm. in uh, the farmhouse, there was no senpai kohai. No, not in the farmhouse. <laughs> yeah. You know, was a farmer. We weren't farmers, but we were living in that community. But um, I guess one of the things that I would say was a lesson from the dojo is being aware of the relationships Senpai Kohai, in that sense, that whatever situation you're in, you're never just like with another person, another human being. It's that, that relationship, that person is superior to you, or it's done this, uh, something longer, or knows more about it, or their wife is the friend of, of someone, you know, and it's like, you know, and then there's this circle, or, you know, that, that they're always, everything is in relationship to something else you're, you're never just oh i'm meeting that person and and, and that's what it is it, you know am, am i learning from them am i teaching them or you know how long have i i known them or all of these things um that come into play and, and of course it was still do in japan I, I would say i deal with that on a daily basis yeah yeah i think that you summed it up yeah that that was what i was trying to get at is that coming from new zealand myself as well I, did, I had to learn that through working in a Japanese school and going to Ikebana. Ikebana taught me that as well. You know, doing Ikebana. Okay, you're higher than me. Okay, I need to just sort of, you know, listen to you. And I don't, you know, obviously I don't know anything. Okay, time to be quiet. Um, all of these things that you don't necessarily know when you arrive in Japan. So, yeah, yeah, that was really interesting. So being up on that mountain and then you eventually, you said no more. You just put your foot down. And you moved your family down into town, <laughs> I guess you want to call it. Have you been back to the mountain recently or? I actually go, yeah, I would say, yeah, well, pretty regularly. You know, when we have visitors, I uh, often will drive up there or sometimes I, you know, just go, you know, to say hello or, or uh, you know, there's some of the neighbors who are still there and, and they're not many because they were older people and most of them have passed away. And I don't know, I guess it was about a year ago, I heard something on the public, the PA system, saying that there was a fire at Take no Taira in Kutokoro Yama. And that's exactly where our, our house was, in the exact spot. And I thought, well, whatever it, it was, you know, it would have affected someone who you know, we knew or, you know, one of the houses. But my husband and I drove up there. I guess it was you know, uh, probably just uh, I don't know, about two months ago, and because I just I really wanted to, to check I, if if it had been you know a tragedy where someone had lost life or whatever, I, I would have uh, heard about that. 
But none of the houses seem to have been destroyed. So it might have just been a fire in the, the woods or, or something like that. But yeah, it's, you know, what can I say? It's, yeah, sad or disheartening to go there now because I see the houses in disrepair. The person who had our house, who moved um, in some years after we left our farmhouse, hasn't taken care of it. And I mean, it, it looks like it, I, I, yeah, not that it's going to fall, you know, <laughs> apart or whatever, but just that it's not cared for. And it's full, you know, can see through the windows that it's just full of junk and I don't know what this person is, you know, collecting or why it's, you know, so, yeah, just overstuffed with things. And, you know, the outside is just covered in weeds. And and it, and it wasn't that it was such, you know, a perfect house before, but we did take care of it. And... I think one of the photos in the memoir, you can see where we had a shakuhachi concert there in one of the rooms. And all you can see are tatami and shoji because it was, you know, really just adhering to that simple Japanese aesthetic. But it's not like that now. It's a shame. But yeah, it's not unexpected either with what, yeah, in mountains and rural areas. And I know walking around where my husband is from, like maybe a third of the houses are lived in and the rest are empty, run down, full of junk, just slowly rusting away. It's very sad to see, isn't it? Mm. It really, really is. Mm. So in the interim, so you've moved down from the mountain, you, you've come down to, to town and you've had a writing career in Japan for quite a while. And I love to profile women who have found a way to do what they want to do, even though... They live in Japan. So living in Japan is not an excuse for <laughs> just you know, having to be an English teacher. I mean, it's not an impediment. I, I'm sorry, what's that? It's not an impediment, you know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm in yeah. Japan, so everything is in my way. I can't do this. I can't do that. You know? Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you got started with writing and becoming as a job. And now you have a book. Yeah. I would say, well, uh, starting with becoming a columnist. At first, you know, I was just writing some essays just, just for my own, yeah, I can't say edification, but because I, I've written for a while. And I, I would write essays, and every now and then I would have an opportunity to have uh, one published, you know, sometimes in translation. And I often, you know, tried to get work published, and it wasn't, wasn't easy at all. And I mentioned this also in the, the memoir that my husband was often approached you know, for his opinion about something or to contribute something to a publication. And he has no interest in writing whatsoever. (laughs) None. And he was approached because he's a man, he's a professor. And, you know, they just assumed that that, that he'd want to uh, publish, I guess. But he would often tell them, please ask my wife. You know, she'd love to do it. She'd love to write an essay about, you know, living, you know, uh, in the Inaka or wh- whatever it was, or you know, raising children here and in public education. So slowly, you know, some things started to open up. And my first column assignment was for Chunichi Shimbun, which is a national paper, and I wrote for a regional edition. Mm. And the editor of that paper had the, the idea to publish a, a, a column 
person could write in English and it was open to readers to translate it. And at the time, this, this was a very, very novel idea. I mean, afterwards, the Japan Times did something similar. And it really just took off. You know, one, I could write about anything I, I chose. And the readers would send in their translations. Often, there, you know, 100 translations, sometimes 200. And he would judge them. He, uh, he himself had been the bureau chief in London and I think and also in New Delhi. And this column went for 14 or 15 years until he retired. Oh. I had no intention of stopping. And yeah, it, it, it was very well received. And yeah, and then after that, yeah, well, some um, people who've been in Japan for, for a really long time would, would know Jean Pierce, who wrote for the Japan Times. She had a very, very popular column called Getting Things Done. And it was the most wonderful resource because... If you were trying to do something, find something, you know, make some connection, Jean would help you get it done. And she really did. And again, this was long before the internet or Google or all of these things. I mean, and it could be something as simple as, you know, where where can I find a peanut butter, you know, whatever, oatmeal or, uh, in my case, I was looking for a fertility specialist at the time and, and that. And then the, the Japan Times started a column called Living in Japan, and this was open to readers. So right there, some experience, um, you know, as, as a foreigner li- living in Japan. And it had a 500-word limit, and Jean, Gina t- told me about it, and she thought I might write something for the inaugural uh, column. And I sat down to write, and the next thing I knew, I had 2,000 words. And being totally unprofessional at the time, I, I sent it in, and... They not only did not reject it, they really liked it and wanted to make it a, a feature article, which they did. And, and you know, they asked for photographs. And yeah, and it was from that ex- experience that I, I was encouraged by the managing editor at the time, Johanny, uh, to you know, continue to write and, and to you know, con- contribute. And, and, and I did. And when I saw the opportunity, I suggested the column Hamamatsu Highlights which I, I, I wrote, I guess, for about five years when we lived in the city of Hamamatsu. And then when we built our current house, I asked if I could write a column and, and to, that really showed readers my perspective, uh, being an American woman married to an American, raising children in rural Japan. And yeah, I did that for the next, I guess, 10, 11 years or something like that. And it, it was hugely popular. Mm. I can't imagine. Yeah. So we were just discussing before we got on the call today that these columns were the podcasts of today. Like today we use podcasts a lot to connect with people, to feel part of a community, to feel less alone, to get information. And these columns, right, that you were writing were at the time, yeah, the way that that it was done. Yeah, that was the, the thing to do. Yeah. You can't imagine how many people wrote me. And, and of course, at the time, people weren't just dashing off emails or something like, like that. But, you know, I have a collection of letters and cards and invitations and, I mean, all of these uh, ways of connecting with people that, I mean, it was helpful to them, but also sustained me because I felt I was making connection with people. I had no other, you know, opportunity to I, uh, living as remotely as I did. 
and so I, I really felt connected with my, my readers, I, I must say. And people wrote me all the time and very often asking for advice. So it wasn't a, an advice column in any way or form, but you know, very often people wanted a, a, advice, including, I, and I mentioned this in the memoir, a Japanese woman who lived in America, <laughs> who was considering returning to Japan and marrying a Japanese man. And she asked me, what should she do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just imagine, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, that she, she's, and she ended her letter saying, I really need to know what you think. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I really <laughs> need to uh, have your opinion. Yeah. It wasn't so much pressure as, I mean, is it, is what, how nice that she you knows she had that kind of confidence yeah. in, in me or, you know, my, uh, Ability to, to give her to, you know, good advice or guidance or, or whatever it is. But I thought a lot, you know, before I answered her, I, I can tell you, I, I thought about it a lot. Wow, that's so amazing. And to have that kind of feedback from your readers and, yeah, for you to feel less alone where you were living. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I also have two children and I live here in Fukushima prefecture in yeah. Iwaki city and there are no foreigners around here um for probably a good five kilometer radius I'd say there there's not another foreigner I'm pretty sure I've checked right. <laughs> anyway you really have to go and look for them no, <laughs> yeah right so um yeah having that way to connect with someone who understands what you're living through is, you know, of course I can call my family in New Zealand, but they don't really understand my reality in Japan. They have not lived it. Or my friends back in New Zealand and even my friends in Tokyo, maybe don't really understand the reality, right? Of living outside of a major city where you, you know, you feel like having food from your home country, you can't just walk down the street and find it or, you know, it's a, it's a mission, right? You have to plan and, and oh, you want to buy shoes that fit your feet. Well, good, good luck with that. You need a, yeah, good luck. Well, good luck with that. But you probably need a full day trip to Tokyo to find something, you know, that sort of thing. You know, that's, that's the reality of life still here today um, in Japan, even with all of these conveniences. So, I yeah, I really love that that was a way that you were able to, well, probably still are um, able to connect with people who, who get you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And that's what we're doing here on the podcast today as well. So thank you to all my listeners who always reach out and say you feel less alone because you've been listening to us and that you share it with other people as well. Yeah. So I am quite interested to hear your wisdom on like, raising children in Japan and you've had several children go through the Japanese school system. Now, my kids are seven and 10 right now. So we're talking first grade in elementary school and fourth grade. And yeah, I'd love to hear what, what do you think is something that helped you to be a successful parent? That the kids, somehow they work it out. I, I, you know, but from what, well, um, yeah. Would I ever have the hubris to say that I've been a successful parent? <laughs> I, what can I say? I feel like I've done my job and it's not over, by the way. I haven't dealt children, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're a mother, you're always a mother. And, you know, that's who you are. I don't think it ends. It's, it just, you know, it becomes different, has... Uh, 
different that evolves that. yes <laughs> but um you know things were really so so different uh then and uh, my say eldest daughter entered school here elementary school here it's it's now like 45 years ago things have changed in japan in 45 years absolutely and at the time she was going to school and and my uh three subsequent uh children they had not even one foreign friend no one no one the entire time they went to public school in japan they never had a foreign friend and, and it's not like living nearby or in the neighborhood or, you know, someone, you know, that you could visit or whatever. They never, ever did. And they were always the, the only foreign children in, in their schools. And of course, I'm not half Japanese. My husband is, is American and I'm American. And, you know, of course they stood out. It goes without yeah, saying. Yeah. I mean, how, how could they not? But at the same time, I, I, I felt they loved school. They had many friends. They... You know, they still have friends that they have, you know, from kindergarten and elementary school. Um, uh, it's a lot of friends, friends in, in Japan. They like their teachers, their classes, their activities. I mean, they had a good school life. And that is not to say that, that you know, that there was never, ever a problem, especially if the school, you know, took an excursion or went to for, you know, a sports meet at a different school. Other kids who are not used to seeing them, no doubt they were pointed at and called gaijin or whatever it is. But I never made it a problem. I just thought, this is where we live. This is, is the fact of, uh, of your existence. Of course, I didn't talk to them like that. But I thought that these are things that, you know, they can live with and they can deal with. And that, right. yeah, I w was not going to think that it was a big deal. That, that's all. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't, you know, don't know how else to say it. I remember once, and I also write this in the memoir, that our daughter came home, I know it was probably in the early years of elementary school, and said that one of her classmates had called her American. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, guess what, my little friend, you are American. You know? mm. She was born here. She right. only spoke Japanese. Mm. Uh, our, our children were speaking Japanese to us, and we you know spoke English uh, then. But you know, she didn't see herself as different from her friend Yurika-chan or whomever. And and of course, as young children, that's um, you know how they will, will do. And yeah, yeah, I, I think it's you know just my general philosophy of life or way of life that if yeah, if you're open and if you're acceptance and, and, and you can, yeah, I would say move with people where they are, you'll learn something, they'll learn something. You know, we can work this out is really my feeling. And I'll, I'll say here, and if my husband were here, he would concur. And that is sometimes if, you know, we were out and about and our children were stared at, for example, and maybe some of your Listeners won't know that I, I'm a black, I'm a black American, my husband is white, and that he would sometimes have the reaction. I mean, he would get really angry. Oh, you know, oh, why you know, you're staring at them or give them a dirty look or something like that. And I would think, well, what's, you know, what's, what's the big deal? You know, <laughs> no one's burning crosses. You know, our children are 
having, you know, uh, the National Guard bring them to school because of segregation, which, you know, uh, of course, had existed in, in the United States. And there was never, never anything so terrible, you know, that I, I didn't you know, th think um, that we could deal with. But of course, yeah, he's white. He had a different perspective, you know, not the, uh, besides for being a, a father and, you know, and, and, and being protective. But, it, you know, it, I would say different experiences and different perspectives, you know, change um, what your out outlook is. And, you know, I've traveled a lot. And in the trip that I mentioned before, when, when we traveled across Europe and, you know, into Asia, I was stared at all the time. Absolutely all the time. Uh, there wasn't any place I wasn't stared at. And I would say, and even, you know, where I, I live now, well, now people, you know, it's, uh, that's one thing that's really changed in Japan. It's just not so strange or so di different, even though I live in uh, a entirely Japanese uh, community. But I can tell you, if I go to the post office or the dentist or the shopping center or the supermarket or you know the pool or the park <laughs> and, uh, there's no one who looks like me ever absolutely ever i stand out i know i do if that were a problem for me i'd be insane now i, I would have entirely lost my mind it just you know isn't and i feel like why should i make it a problem you know if you see a photo of me i i um do hula uh, now? Yes, I do. I love. I'm a devoted student of hula. I'm not very good, but I am a devoted student. In my class of, I would say, 15 women. Of course, there are no foreigners there. Yeah, you could say, oh yeah, but she's the only black person. I'm also the tallest person in the class. You know, if you saw me with in my calligraphy uh, class, I'm also uh, there, the, the tallest person in the class, or with the modern dance class, you know, that, that I taught, et cetera. So I can't make any issue about, you know, the, the color of my skin, you know. I can take neither blame or credit for it, you know. It's an immutable characteristic, like my age, you know, or, or, or my height. So I tend not to make this in any focus of, you know, of my life, and but and it's not even... I don't even have to do it consciously or unconsciously or whatever. It's just like, it isn't. Yeah, very good. So the the thing that I took away from that is it's your choice, basically, to think what you think. And we can also take that back to the kids going to school and, you know, how things happen to kids. Well, not people say things to kids who are half Japanese or not Japanese and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, as parents, it's our choice if we choose to make something of it and and feel aggrieved and and that my kids also have a similar sort of schooling to what your kids do they love this school they like their teachers they're they're generally accepted as you know part of the school but they don't have any friends who are not Japanese who are not completely Japanese I think my daughter is the only child in the school for years who's been born out of the country or something like that yeah that's sort of where they are in their school but in saying that it's been good for us that we've been in the same place for such a long time. They've gone to kindergarten and they've grown up, you know, in this house. My neighbors have lived with me around in the neighborhood for 10 years. So they're like, oh, that's the, the foreign lady who has a, a dog and two kids. Yeah, I'm just... And two just, eyes, you know, a nose and a mouth. <laughs> yeah, right. She's another but, human being. Yeah. yeah. And I remember moving to this neighborhood and being like too shy to walk around the streets because I was thinking, you know, I'm new and right. what are people going to say? But I realized 
okay, I have to go outside my house. And, and after a while, it wasn't an issue and people got used to me, but people would come up to me and say, oh, your children have grown. I'm like, well, yes, they have, but who are you? You know, <laughs> They've been watching me for years and never spoken to me, but from a distance until one day I'm walking with like just my dog and no children. And they're like, oh, your children have grown up. Have they gone to kindergarten? I'm like, well, yes, they have. Um, yes, and you are. <laughs> you didn't know them. Right. I didn't know them, but they know me. Yeah, right. this is this is what it is. But yeah, um, yeah, it's your choice. Yeah. Well, some people you know, have asked, you know, how were you accepted living in the farming cook community, or you know, or even just now, it's like you know, living in an entirely Japanese community. I feel that once people know that you are in fact a part of the community, you know, that you will do the community, you know, jobs and tasks and different things that come up. Uh, that you're you're at the PTA meetings or the Sankankai or you know, uh, the volunteer work, whatever whatever it is, that you make obento, you know, you know these really like you know common things that you may look different, but you're really not so strange. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, you're uh, another person in, in the community. Yeah, we have the rubbish collection point outside our house this year. We're taking it. We're taking it for the. For the team this year and having out the rubbish yeah. collection outside our house. Next- oh, my husband is doing the same thing right now. In our- <laughs> now it's interesting you say you're doing the hula, you're learning hula now because Iwaki City is the hula capital of Japan. Yeah. If In case you didn't, did you know that? No, I didn't. Wow. Have you ever seen the movie Fulagaru's? Yes, I, I have. Actually, pretty yeah. recently, because one of the members in my hula class told me, "Oh, you absolutely have, have to see it." I, I hadn't seen it. Yeah. It's a sweet movie, right? So yeah. that movie is about my city. Yeah, is about. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh. Yeah, and so, so you I, can. I couldn't remember the name of where, where it was being held. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that well known <laughs> that everyone knows the movie, but yeah, it's uh, about Iwaki City and. Yeah, if you come to Iwaki City, everybody's wearing Hawaiian Hawaiian shirts, and that's all you know. It's all about uh, yeah. the hula here. Mm. <laughs> if you ever feel like, yeah, yeah. If, if you can't get back to the states and you want some <laughs> hula immersion time, please come to Iwaki City. Thank you. Well, it's been really wonderful to connect with you, Karen, to hear more about your book, about you and your life, and just to hear some of your wisdom. And I think definitely that a lot of listeners will definitely take some things away from our chat today. And I really hope you all go out and get on Amazon and buy your copy of The View from Breast Pocket Mountain. I have to say, I spent a weekend reading it. I told my family to leave me alone. And I was just reading, I read it over a weekend because I just enjoyed it so much. There's something in there for everyone. And I think you will really enjoy this memoir. Yeah, it's a memoir, isn't it? A memoir of an amazing life thus far and I'm sure many more things to come what's next for you Karen what what do you see on the horizon oh what's next anything on the horizon well most people uh want to know what am I going to write next and and often I would say well writers don't talk about what they write okay (laughs) you you write it and and you put it out there but now I can say I'm completing a novel and I have another non-fiction project that that I'm also working on well, you're very busy then, yeah. Yeah, and we, we shall see when you know when they actually uh, are birthed. 
published. So. Very good. And if anyone wants to reach out to you or say hi, is that okay? Is there some way they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Please, um, they go to my website, karenhillanton.com. They will find my um, email, karenhillanton at gmail.com. And, and as it says on that page, I am famous, well-known for saying, no one will go to their grave saying, Karen owes me a letter. Wow. I answer absolutely every uh, communication. That's lovely. So there you have it. You can, you can get in contact with Karen if there's something you'd love to ask her or, or um, anything. Go and do that. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I like to keep in touch and see what you get up to in the future. Thank you, Jane. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And see you next time, everybody. So that was the interview with Karen Hill Anton. I was so impressed with her book, how amazing the story is in itself. And the book is really, really riveting. As I mentioned in the episode, I spent a weekend reading it and I couldn't put it down until I finished and found out what happened and all of that. So I really encourage you to get yourself a copy head over to Amazon or wherever you get your books and get yourself a copy of that book. It really is a lovely memoir of a very interesting life that Karen has had. And yes, as she said, she would love to hear from you. So go over to her website. You'll find the link in the show notes and she will definitely get back to you. And she said in the episode that it's been a huge source of joy for her to connect with people who have read what she's written and reach out to her. So I hope you will do that and say hi and say that you heard her on the Transformations with Jane podcast. And yes, definitely go out and get yourself a copy. It's definitely a great read. So that's all for today. We have more wonderful guests for you coming soon. I'm very looking forward to my next interview, which is with Dr. Mira Simic. And that's going to be a great resource for everyone as well, I'm sure. So that's all for now. I'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.